Well, it is, it's good to be back and again back from Chicago. I didn't bring the weather, I'm sure you're glad, but I did bring my annual sinus infection, which means I can do the imitation of God really well. And so it's always fun to teach the Old Testament when that's happening. Father, thank you for your mercy, your grace, and the truths that we learn through your scripture. And whether it be New Testament or now old tonight, you are the same. The principles are always solid. And the lessons, even in Old Testament, more visual than just spiritual understanding, Lord, but truth played out. Uh, We need your help by your spirit to understand them for our hearts today and to apply them in our lives in a way that, Lord, we don't just look at them as suggestions, but they are applications to be practiced that we might experience the true victory you have provided completely now for us in Jesus Christ. So help us tonight to hear, to see, to understand, and to apply all that you would speak to us individually by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 17 tonight. Neil left off last week well, with with chapter 16, with the children of Israel in sin. And yes, it's the wilderness of sin, which is like the Valley of Sinai. And so literally it's sin, but it's also metaphorically sin because as although they've been taken out of Egypt, which is that um, type or visual, you know, representation type of, of the world, they've been removed from that. They're now on this journey to take the world out of them. And so it could just continues tonight that literally they're, they're still in sin. And we saw that last time as um, they were remembering back, as see, we can do, the what we actually sometimes call the good old days. I don't know. But the before Christ days or before you had a relationship with Jesus Christ, knew God personally, you walked in a way that obviously didn't, not only not, didn't please him, but you were lost as I was also. And then we come to this place in Christ now, but then years later we can start looking back and almost like with rose-colored glasses like we see them doing, they're looking back and they're going, but you know, the, the pots of meat were so abundant and the bread was so filling and it just, was it really that bad? And I just want to always remind you as I remind myself, there was a point where I cried out to God to save me. And, and so... Whatever that feeling all was back then, it it was real to get me to come to that place of knowing I needed a savior, and so amen and amen, and and so that's what's taking place with them. Although they're going through this process now of having Egypt removed, and and typically when things get hard, you know, suffering happens, or even in sometimes when sacrifice or patience is the order of the day we can start to falsely accuse God of somehow leaving us, abandoning us, forsaking us in this place that he's brought us to called life abundant, right? But all of a sudden he becomes the villain. And that's kind of what we see the the children doing. And, you know, like I always say when I get a chance to teach the Old Testament, this is the visual 
to what we now experience in the spiritual, in the New Testament. So that's why it's always so relevant. You know, these pictures, you know, as even Neil reminded us last week, right, as it tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, these things were written down for our admonition, for our understanding and learning, that we might not lust after these things like they did. Like, so we'd actually read this stuff and go like, man, I do not want to do that because look at the consequence, look how it plays out. So that's exactly what's happening here. So we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 17 when it says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we might drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So again, you see just this this emotional thrust taking. Now, I just want to point out a couple of obviousnesses first, and that is that, you know, God has brought them life. He's pulled them out of Egypt. He's called them to this place. They're on this journey, and he's actually told them to move out of sin. I'm just going to let that sit there for a minute. And so it is by his command now that they are moving on, They've got this new place now that they're in, Arafadim, which actually means rest and comfort. So God has taken them, you know, this rough journey, and they, they already went through, they, we don't have food, you're trying to kill us. Now they're, we're thirsty, you're trying to kill us. They just keep going back and charging God with his plan as being wrong. And know that it is his plan. He called them, he commanded them to leave, and so they did. They're actually doing exactly what God told them to do. And in the midst of it now, they're charging God with doing wrong. See, and how easily sometimes we can, I mean, well, hopefully we're always in the place of being in the center of God's will. And yet things get rough. Things get challenging. Sacrifices need to be made. Or it's not working the way I thought it was supposed to. And all of a sudden... God's wrong. I'm complaining. I'm murmuring. And please know that that is sin. That's charging God wrongly. That's sometimes somehow saying, you've left me, you have forsaken me, you've abandoned me. Which, I might add, in the New Testament, we have absolute promise that he will never do. He'll never do. Now, that's something that we do have that the Old Testament, you know, saints didn't when they walked through these times. They they had to walk almost in this visual picture and hold to promises based on do and don't because they didn't have the assurance of their sins being forgiven in Christ and now walking in a place of relationship. Yes, our lives will contain chastisement, but not cursing. See, and this is where they would go and have to deal with. But it's... It's just such a clear picture of people that all of a sudden turn because things, it just isn't working out. Even though it it clearly shows right here that they are in the middle of God's will. So right away then, as will happen when people 
aren't getting what they want or it's not working the way it should or they don't think God is there or worse, they have now turned from God because maybe they were never with God, but they come against the people who are leading them. It's got to be somebody else's fault. If somebody was doing the right job here, I'd be content. I'd have peace. I'd have prosperity. And so they get mad then at the people that are around them, right? It says here that, you know, they, that they contended with Moses. With Moses, that word contended means complain, they quarreled, things you, you know, expect. But it also means to conduct legal case against, to sue. So they literally wanted to sue Moses because of where they were at, right? Now, just imagine this. They saw the plagues come. They saw the deliverance given. They've already experienced the bread from heaven. And now they're suing the guy because they're thirsty. Things aren't going right. And so I've got to blame someone. Because what they don't want to look at is the fact that their faith in God and trusting him is shallow. So rather than looking at themselves and saying, okay, I got a deep lesson to learn here. They want to blame somebody out there and say, you're not doing me right, or this isn't going right because of you. No, it's because of them. And what they don't realize is they are exactly where God put them, and they're in the test exactly what God would have them to be tested for to reveal to them exactly what God would have them to know, which is, you guys are shallow. You don't really believe yet. And I want you to. I want to grow you up. That's our Heavenly Father, just like it's an earthly father. You want the baby to grow. You want the babe to become a young. You want the young to become an old. You want them to grow. And so that's what's happening right here. And they're not, give, they're not getting it, you know. And so many times people will walk in unbelief. God will take them to a place to challenge that unbelief, to get them to believe, to, to focus on not only him, faith, but also truth, how faith would actually work. And rather than figuring that out through him by his Holy Spirit and his word, they turn on those around them. And so, you know, if you've maybe experienced that, it, it's, it's a biblical truth, and you're just experiencing what great men and women before you have. So watch it, because it is an absolute mistake to falsely charge God because of your circumstance. It is in every way then saying he doesn't get your life. He's not really in charge of it. He somehow has abandoned you or forsaken you. And he hasn't. But has he put you into a place where you have a lesson to learn or something to get about him more clearly? And he's just waiting for you to get it. That he might be able to then move on with you. You know? Always want to keep that in mind when things don't, don't go well. I also want to just remind you that back in Exodus 12... We were told that this multitude, and remember, we're talking about maybe a couple million people here. This is not just a, you know, a large congregation. This is like a nation moving here. But it's a mixed multitude. There were those that came out of Egypt with them that were not of them, but were with them. Now, why? I don't know. Maybe they saw the plagues. They thought, dude, that, that God is cool. Or maybe it's because God actually defeated their gods and they thought, well, there's nothing left for us here. We might as well go with the winners, you know? And they just thought this was a cool thing or it was neat. Maybe they, it was the, you know, just the, the whole idea of, well, you know, I don't know what he's going to do with them, but it's going to be better. So let's just follow them. 
but they're hanging out with a mixed multitude. And so not everybody here who's complaining is God's child. And I, I don't want to get lost in this, but you know, it's sometimes you know, I'll, I'll just remind you guys that there's fungus among us. You know, not everybody that's in church is church, the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. There are people that hang out around us because they like us. They like nice people. Maybe they like God's blessings. They don't want God's way, but they want his blessings. Oh, that was the sin of Esau. He wanted God's you know, blessing, but he didn't want God's way. That's why he sold it, his birthright, for a bowl of soup. He just wanted the blessing. He didn't want the way. So there are those around us that just tend to hang out. Well, they're going to be the first ones to murmur, to complain, to bring a lawsuit. Why? Well, because they don't have a relationship with God. They're not in it for the spiritual growth. They're in it for the gain of what they can get. When they're not getting the gain, then they're the first ones to come against or to question or to murmur or to, you know, come against. So I always want to just warn the church always, be careful then who you bend your ear to listening to. Because it's, it's a spiritual truth, right? The multitude in Scripture is always wrong. It's narrow the way to truth. It's few that find themselves on it. But broad is that way to destruction. And there are many that walk there. So, now again, this is not a... I don't want this to turn into a, 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 a fear thing tonight. But I just want to be clear about what the Scripture is really showing us here in uh, a story that we can be really familiar with and just kind of skip over and go like, oh yeah, this is when they were thirsty and now they're going to you know, bust up the rock and you know, God's going to do a thing. Yeah, but consider why they got to this point and why it has to be done this way. Because people's hearts are not where they need to be yet. And, and God yet is always trying, to, trying to, to, to bring that to us. But once we get in, you know, in this relationship with the Lord and we're walking you know, with him and stuff, it is a point of standing. You know, we're in, um, we're just finishing up Joshua on Wednesday mornings in the men's Bible study. And it was really cool this morning. We're right at the end of the book now. We're, we just finished 23, next week's 24, we're end, you know, end of Joshua. So tonight, in fact, we see the first time Joshua enters into the picture with the children of Israel in battle, which is kind of cool. Here he is at the beginning and then he's, he's fighting all the way to the end. And at his end, when it says in chapter 23 that he's old in age and you know, he's getting ready to check out, right? he wants to leave a message to the people now that he's, he's going to be going away from. And he says in verse 6, Therefore, be very courageous, cora- courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right or to the left, unless you go among those nations, those who remain among you. The, the warning is that once you get in that promised land, once you've got the victory, and that's what they were doing in, in Joshua 23, it, it begins by saying God gave the people rest. They got into the land. There was a rest now. There was a peace. And Joshua's warning was like, now be courageous in the things of God. So in other words, it, that wasn't a time to kick back and kind of, you know, 
rest on your laurels, as they say, where it's just like, well, you know, I've gone to church for years now. Oh, yeah, I've been study. I remember once um, I was a new pastor, and, and we were going to start the Old Testament uh, at, at church. And I remember that, you know, it's like kind of like, you know, next week we're going to start the book of Genesis, you know. And I remember specifically a couple came up to me and said, uh, we just want you to know, it was Wednesday night's service, typical of this. We won't be coming um, uh, to Wednesday night, you know, anymore. We just wanted that, you know, ahead of time. It's like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Well, you know, it's just that, you know, well, you know, we've been through the book of Genesis before. Okay. So there you go. It's like, we check. Genesis, done it. We're not coming on Wednesday nights till you're out of Genesis. It's Okay. And, uh, but we can sometimes have that mentality where it's like, well, everything's peaceful and everything's restful, so I guess everything's okay. I can kind of take, take it easy with my God thing. And Joshua would say, no, be courageous with it. You know, and, and the word courageous, of course, it means what you think it would mean. Be strong, be firm, press, be resolute. Maybe some of you have seen that movie, uh, Courageous that they just came out with, you know, about only a year or two ago about the fathers, the husbands that were like taking a stand for their kids, and we're gonna, this is what we're gonna do now. And they had the ceremonies and they made commitments. Well, it's the same kind of the thing. God would have us to do that, not just for the fact of our family and our kids, but for in fact Him in our hearts, who we are to Him, who He's allowed us to be, created us to be as His children, you know. And so very, very important that we get that, you know, and that we, we walk in this, in, the, in this life that he's given us and realize that, man, if we're not moving forward courageously in him, we are sliding back. Another term for that is back sliding. Only because God is always having us as, as soldiers, we're also always, soldiers are always ready. They're always soldiered up, and that's who we are in God's army, soldiers. Now, if you're a babe in Christ, you know, a babe soldier, you know, young person, okay, you got a little bit different responsibility maybe, but if you've been in the Lord a while, then you even more so are a soldier who needs to be geared up, and you know, we see that actually in this whole chapter as it, as it plays out. It's really kind of great how God just wraps us all together, right? So... Just want you to just see how they, you know, first they're accusing Moses of, you know, he's going to starve him to death. Now he's going to thirst him to death. And he yet points them right to God and says, you realize you're not complaining against me. Your complaints are against God because he made me your leader. Like he called me to do this. He delivered you from Egypt, from the world, from your bondage, from slavery by calling me to do this. So you realize it's actually him you're tempting, that you're, you, you know, you're, you're coming against. And to tempt God literally just means that you are forcing God to prove who he is or what he has said. Like you're forcing his hand to have to do that. And of course, the scripture tells us, don't do that. Not wise. Why? Because we're supposed to, as believers, walk by faith and not by sight. I'm not supposed to have proof from God of what he says he'll do for me or what he, you know, is supposed to come up with for me because he's already proven his love for me by giving his son to die. And that is my evidence. And by faith, accepting that 
confessing it with my mouth, believing it in my heart, my life is transformed, and the proof then that I am his is evident because I am not what I used to be. I'm now born again. I'm new creation in Christ, right? So all of that, you know, and that's what they were forgetting. I mean, all the stuff that they'd, they'd seen and, and already experienced, and yet they still come to this place where it's not enough. So it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people. Okay, I won't try and do that, because actually my voice is lightening up a little bit. And take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also, take in your hand your rod, with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Hebron, at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock. The water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Mesa and Mirabah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? See, and there's that whole thing. God has done all this stuff and then they're still going, I don't know, is God really, are you really, can you show me? And that's what, that's what tempting him is like. But anyway, look, he tells Moses, look, take your staff, the, the, the one that you've been doing all this other stuff with, it's wonderful. Take what's in your hand and go. Stand before the people. Take some elders with you. So he wants to do two things here. One, he wants to prove that, yes, Moses is the man I've called to lead you. So don't try to take him to court and sue him. Don't charge him falsely. He is my man. And secondly, I am for you, I am here with you, and I hear your cries and will answer. I just love, it's very specific. Look, I will go before you. God is absolutely with him. He's going to prove he's there. But you, Moses, you will be the one that strikes the rock. Like he's going to use the vessel that makes himself available. You know, so I, I just encourage you with that. I remember when I stepped up to be pastor, years ago, when I was a lot younger, that there were some elder people in the congregation. And so we're kind of talking about that right here. And, and, and um, so one of them particularly really questioned whether or not I should be pastor because I was too young. And, um, and, and you know, that's a fair question. Like, you know, you're getting a new pastor and the old guy's out and the new guy's in and the new guy's young and, and you wonder that. And anyway, she found herself reading in scripture and actually reading right around this part of scripture. And God said to her, that is the leader I've chosen, like you follow. And so with that, she actually came and told me that. Now, I mean, that was cool that God told her that like, okay, so he is your pastor. That was cool. But what that did also was it gave me a lot of confidence that I was her pastor. Not her, but that I was called to be the pastor. Because don't you think that with a million people murmuring against you and coming against you, that you don't start to wonder if you really want this position too. You know, like really, like anybody else wants to pick this up, God, I'm willing to, you know. And, and God was like, no, you are my man and you're going to prove it by doing this act now before the elders and, and with, you know, the power that I'm going to reveal. So just, uh, you know, keep that in mind that if God has called you, he is not just going to 
prove his hand upon you, but he is also going to expect you to move forward even when that hand is challenged. You have to know that you know that you know that you're called. Because when it gets really tough, in the calling, and I don't just mean if, hey, anybody out there called to be a pastor. We're not talking about just this place. I'm talking about my place because I'm here and I get to talk. But anything that God calls you to will be challenged because anything that's affecting Satan's world for God's kingdom and redeeming it, he is going to come against. And he's got lots of people out there that will speak on his behalf, meaning Satan, and will come to discourage you. And so God will do both those things. He will not only encourage people that you are the one by allowing them to see how God uses you, but he will encourage you that you are his one as you seek him and, and ask and, and draw close to him. So watch both those. Now, we also know from the New Testament, there is a bigger picture going on here. Because in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 3 and 4, we're told that as the children of Israel were going through and they all ate of the same spiritual food and they all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, that rock was Christ. So it, again, this is not just about um, a, a, a situation where the people are thirsty and God wants to give them something to drink. This is also a spiritual picture that was being written so that New Testament times, the Israelites could look back, the Jews could look back and go like, that was this, and now this is him. And, but they weren't willing to do that because they had gotten so into their religiosity and were in such a prideful vein of laws and tasks and acts for God that they didn't need a Messiah anymore. They had what they needed already, and so they lost it. But we have to make sure that we don't get in that place. So that's why when, of course, they, um, that Moses, when he went out with the, um, you know, his, his staff and he struck the rock, that, uh, that was a picture of Jesus being struck, meaning Jesus being if he, beaten, tortured, and eventually, of course, crucified, that life might come from that act. And that's exactly what this is a picture of. In fact, in John chapter 7, when the festival of the, um, the unleavened bread was going on, the tabernacles, and they were having the different feasts, Jesus, during the festival of the Feast of Tabernacles, stood up and, in context of this event right here, said this. And I'll start in verse 37 of John chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, that great day, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So that's actually what this was speaking about. Now, once Christ you know, came, was struck, and now back to life and stuff. Now Jesus relates it and says, now what's going to happen after that is it's a picture of what you will receive as the Holy Spirit comes into your life and out of your life now will flow these rivers of living water. This life water will come out of you. And what even more of a miracle for the idea that out of the rock of our heart, the living water of the Holy Spirit will come as this picture was showing the Israelites back then that water can come from a rock. 
So it, it, it's all this spiritual picture, see, from Old Testament to New, that we just so have to, to, to grasp, you know? This is everything that God wanted his people to understand, and we have now the, the, the blessing of understanding it. Now, you know, later on, there's another rock incident, that some 40 years later, where these children's children are getting ready to enter the promised land. And once again, they're complaining that they don't have water. And Moses, once again, is not, well, he's not so much on the offensive of himself now as much as he is so angry and frustrated that once again he has to deal with people that are thirsty and they've seen all that God has done for now the last 40 years that you know that he goes up and he takes his rod and strikes the rock twice. Now, water still comes forth which is a miracle in itself because only because not only did it well, come from the rock, but that God had told him not to strike it. In fact, God had told him to speak to the rock only. He said, go speak to the rock and water will come forth. And Moses went out there and said, like, you rebels, you know, must we give you water again from this rock? And he hits the rock, you know, a couple of times. Water comes forth because God is still wanting to bless his people, even though his servant at that time now was disobedient and misrepresented him. And because of that act, Moses was not allowed to lead the people into the promised land. All those years. And Moses blew it by misrepresenting God. And so again, the, the warning for me as an older guy, you know, and I, it, it, it's like this morning, you know, we're talking about Joshua. He's like, he's old in years and about to, and I'm like, you know, great. We're, here we are, men's Bible study. There's all these 20-somethings and then there's me, the old guy. You know, and it's like, yeah, we're about to cash out. But this is when I have to be so careful is because these, these patriarchs that lost it in their, in their elder years, thinking that I've done this, man. I, I know how to make this water out of the rock thing work. And I am so angry at you guys for making me do this again. And he didn't realize that what he was doing was misrepresenting God. And God will deal with that. Right? So... A warning, I guess, you know, for the couple gray hairs that are here tonight, and not so much the young people, but warnings for you to watch out for that, that the old guys, the old women, we need to watch ourselves because it's really easy for us to get in our older age a pride or an arrogance or an expectation or a presumption, there's the word, about God and how we serve him that even when he tells us what to do, we can go against it. And he will still come after us. We're, we're never done with this journey. You know, this, this journey from the wilderness of sin to the promised land. Never done with it until we are home in heaven. And that's when we will know as we have been known. But until that point, it is about being courageous in the things of God. And until that day, man, any of us could be taken out by a, a bad act like Moses was at this point. So... Watch out, because it's definitely something that we can all fall victim to. Now, um, just a couple things to point out, too, why it was so wrong of Moses to do that, to strike the rock a couple times. One is because the first time now when he strikes it, it was about Jesus' death and the, the need of the, the rock of God to be struck. But now that that rock has been struck, it only needs to be spoken to because it has resurrected. And so now we speak to Jesus, right? We confess to Christ. We believe in our hearts. It's not about striking the Savior again. Now it is about accepting by faith. And it is about the living water that comes 
by the Holy Spirit now being in us, that we receive by faith, by asking. In fact, in in Luke's gospel, where Jesus is giving his kind of outline for prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, pray this way. In Luke's gospel, it specifically says, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So all you need to do is ask. If you want the Holy Spirit, all the more to empower your life, to bring the victory in your life, which we see needed here, but the children of Israel not really wanting to submit to, is by asking, asking and believing. And that's what will bring you the victory. And again, that's what we're so seeing right here. Even Paul, you know, in his writings at one point said, look, I buffet my bodies because after preaching to other, others, I don't want to be disqualified. We all have to watch ourselves. And that last verse of, last, of verse 7, that, that last line, is the Lord among us or not? And that's where you don't want to find yourself. And that's a choice. Because everything that God says about his word says, he is always with you, never will forsake you, never leave you. So it's a choice I have. When I let my feelings, my emotions, the circumstances that I'm in, overwhelm me to the point where I would falsely accuse him. And want to really watch for that. Now, Amalek came and fought with Israel in Raphidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hands that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hands, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supposed his hand, or supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So this is, I just love this whole chapter, how it wraps just kind of victory um, in this nice little package for us, right? So this is the first time we see battle now for the children of Israel. They've come out of Egypt. They've been going through, you know, the wilderness thing. And they're, they're, they're kind of getting themselves kind of after the Red Sea when the Egyptians were coming at them. This is the first time now we've had somebody actually coming at to attack and we have a war situation. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 25 talks more about it, gives us more insight. I'll put it that way. Um, Amalek came against them. They were, they were going through their region, right? And how they did it was they came up behind the Israelites. So you got this huge nation moving forward, you know? And it's just like any marathon, you know, race. You just got this mob of people going. I doubt if anybody was running. But the stronger, more active, and moving forward people, they're in the front, right? So who's in the back? It's just, the, you know, it's the people that are like, well, you know, I just want to keep up. And, or maybe it's the elderly. I can't really keep up. Or it's the sickly. You know, well, I'm trying my best to keep up, you know. But that's where Amalek came, is they attacked from the rear. And it really made God angry. Because they were, he, they were going after the weak points, you know, of, of God's people. Now, Amalek, in, in, in this whole picture here is related to Esau, 
right? And, and so he, too, is known as a sign or type of the flesh, Amalek. It's a type of the flesh. The flesh will attack all the time. The weakest points, that's where it comes, right? Especially if you're moving forward to the promises of God. That's when it's going to hit. Now, it's interesting that, you know, there's, there's a time when you're saved. I, re- I remember when I was a baby, baby Christian, and I just remember, like, God doing such obvious, cool things, you know. And not that he doesn't do obvious, cool things now. Stick with me. But it was like, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, I can't. I can't believe that you know, the car won't start. Lord, please, I need to get to work. And all of a sudden, boom, you know, it's like, wow, this is so cool, you know. And there were like these, these little battles that you thought were so heavy attacks of spiritual warfare in your life, you know, because you were a new baby and that's all you, that's what you thought spiritual warfare was. But then there's a point where God's getting you to grow up and you realize that he doesn't fight all the time for you. Now he wants to fight through you. And you have to grow up. And you have to be his soldier. You have to be his vessel. And, and so the battle actually becomes him in you battling. And, and I don't like it, but I realize it absolutely is what I'm called to do when it says to grow up. It, and it's no different than when you're a kid and mom and dad are providing the house and the car and the food and the, you know, the vacation and then you're married and all of a sudden you realize you got to provide it and you got to sign the lease and you got to, you know, you're like, I don't like this adult stuff. And God is saying, no, this is going to be good. Trust me. This is me really working in you, through you and preparing you for all I have for you. And, and so when you get that, all of a sudden it becomes this great place to be where God now is fighting through you. And, and you're, you're in this battle, you know, not just looking to be defended anymore. And, and, and so I, I just kind of see that picture in here, too, where Amalek is coming and he's, he's just trying to take down the, 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 you know, the weaker. And it really makes God angry, but it is also something that needs to be defended. And then the nation, the child, needs to fight with God now against. Now, this is always going to go on. Look at verse 16. And he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, just to let you know, again, the battle never stops. And in fact, it gets just a lot more uh, intense as you get older in the Lord. But the strength or the understanding, or the provision is always there as he's given us all things concerning life and godliness. So I'm never, I'm never given anything I can handle through him. Do I, though, take the time to handle it? And again, he's showing us here exactly how to do it. Now, remember, Saul was given the opportunity to take out Amalek, the Amalekites, Saul was given that charge. Go and wipe them out completely. And what did he do? Well, you know, he just decided they had a lot of nice stuff and they had a lot of nice animals. And well, you know, what does it hurt if he just lets the king live? Because then he can actually bring the king back and humiliate him. But problem is that God only has one sentence for Amalek, i.e. the flesh. Crucify it. 
You can't compromise with it. You can't reform it. You're not, you're not even supposed to really glorify it in your victory from it. It's kill it. It's something that can't be redeemed. It's, uh, it, it needs to have complete victory. You have to have complete victory over it. You know, uh, in, in, in wiping it out. And sure enough, of course, you know, the, the story, Saul didn't. And the Amalekites, of course, came back to bite Saul. Literally, it was an Amalekite that killed him. And, of course, threatened the whole nation of Israel, eventually. So it was something that should have been dealt with, wasn't. Because everybody likes to think, I can, I can just hold on to that little... I'll just let that little piece of the nation survive, right? But again, Joshua chapter 23, be courageous in the ways of the Lord because if you don't, you'll start to look at those little bits of nations that are still around and all of a sudden you're mingling and all of a sudden you're married and all of a sudden I have to bring consequence, correction. Not curse, but correction into our lives because we've mingled. So watch out for that because... He is giving us key to victory here. So let, let's get back to that and not talk about the, the threat. But notice the battle comes at Raphidim. And remember I told you what that meant? It, meant? it means rest and comfort. So at a time when the children of Israel are like, yeah, boom, the battle comes. That's when the flesh, right, sneaks in there. And you think you, you, spiritually I'm okay, and all of a sudden, it, well, you know, it's like that, that saying, Idle hands are the devil's workshop. I know that to be true. I don't know about you guys, but the busier I keep, the better I am, spiritually speaking, you know? And, and so I just learned, that's why I move all the time. Jan's always like, why do you always have to be doing something? It's like, oh, it's just because I'm so spiritual. It's because if I'm not, I'm not spiritual. It's, it's dangerous for me to have downtime. And, and I see that, oh my goodness, I don't, my family will never hear this tape, so I'm going to just be real personal right now. I just went home, you know, visited mom and the family. And, and, and now when I was a kid, I would have told you I was like addicted to television. I just love television. Now that meant I came, came home from school and I'd watch television for a couple hours. You know, and I'd get my homework done or I'd do what I have to do or maybe I'd go out and play for a while and then I'd come home and I'd probably watch television for another hour and then I'd go to bed, you know, like I was addicted. Or I could literally lay on a couch and watch a two and a half hour movie. You know, that was addicted to television. You want to talk about addiction? I literally went and saw my family, haven't seen them for six months and at the end of about an hour and a half, of them asking me, well, how are the kids? How are the grandkids? Um, how's Mike and Pam? You know, how, you know, it let's, you know, make conversation. One by one, they all left me, went to different rooms to all watch their televisions to where I was sitting alone in a room with this giant, like, it's like a 70 foot television. That's seven feet away from me. And I'm like, this is really weird. And then I really, like, then I got it. Like, I wasn't addicted to television when I was a kid. I mean, it was an entertainment distraction, but this is addiction to where they can't turn it off. Like, they can't shut it down. 
they can't stop doing this. And I was like, wow. And that's part of this culture that if you're not watching yourself, it'll bite you. It'll grab you. And you'll find yourself drawn in to a little bit of a nation that was left behind. Well, a little bit of a nation that we all carry in our pockets or our purses with us everywhere. Can you turn it off? You know, you have to, man, ask yourself that because it's crazy. So anyway, back here, I just see these lessons here for the, 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 the victory is, is obvious. Now, it's not so much literal, although it is literal. Like, we're not going to have Pastor Mike come back, stand up on Big Mountain, Pastor Steve and me holding his hands up, you know, while he sits on a snow mound, so that the ministry here has victory. And yet, it is literal. That as he would pray, as we would hold him up as a people as a community of faith, as believers that come alongside, praying for our pastor, praying for the ministry work that we do, praying for the battles that are going on around us, and praying for the battles that are individually going on in our families with each other, you know, for each other, that we're praying for those things. This is where the victory comes. This is spiritual truth here. Now, back it up with the New Testament. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubting. Yeah, you better forgive as you have been forgiven, and you better believe that God is always with you. This is how we enter into prayer. Don't pray double-minded, James says, because why should you think you deserve anything if you're going to ask God for stuff and go, but, you know, if you don't give it to me, then I do have a plan. You know, or just in case you don't come through, then I'm, you know, it's whatever. No, you need to pray believing that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him in faith. This is what it says, right? So this is who we want to be. And so holding up hands, praying, that was a picture that Israel understood as prayer. When they saw some, this was a prayer position for Israel. You read it throughout the Old Testament. Solomon, he's dedicating the temple. He stands and raises his hands. It's like, but by the end of that prayer, he's on his face. You know, it's like Israel understood this as prayer. So when they see Moses up on that hill doing this, they have prayer. They have hope. Now they have victory, right? Moses gets a little tired. Oh my goodness, he's not praying anymore. No hope. Oh no, no victory. Amalek's winning all of a sudden, right? It's a visual picture of what actually literally is spiritual truth when it comes to prayer. We need to be in prayer for victory for these things in our lives, these battles that come at us, these flesh attacks that hit us at the weakest points. This is all what we are learning here in this spiritual truth, right? We need to be in prayer. And if you're getting tired, if you're getting complacent, I'm not saying Moses was that at all. But if you're getting weak, you need to get some partners alongside you that can lift your hands up, that can come alongside with you to have intercessory prayer. People that will come alongside and help. This is how you gain not just the healing, but the accountability. It's not just a one-man show. Moses, I'm sure when he was up there, he would have been alone. He had his hands raised. 
they're winning, but he's getting tired all of a sudden, so the picture is obvious. Without the help, the battle's lost. Now, he can do some stuff on his own, but he gets these others with him, and all of a sudden, the victory by nightfall is theirs. It's in the bag. Because they've followed God's directive. They've sought him. They've come together. They've interceded as a team. Right? And, and that's the picture I'm seeing here that I'm saying we need to absolutely hold on to. James tells us this in prayer, and I'm just going to walk through this. It's chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. A little bit more than what this is exactly saying, but it's that whole, it's like James just wraps it in a little package, New Testament, says this is what it's all about. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. There you go. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. So again, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We come alongside, right? Is anyone among you sick? Sick is a big word, okay? It doesn't just mean like me right now, little sinus thing going on, but what does sick mean? It could mean physical. It could also mean emotional. It could mean spiritual. It's huge, right? Anybody might let him call for the elders of the church, elders, plural, prayer partners, get get some elders, mature prayer partners, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, special oil, got to order it through such and such a ministry because it's been crushed by the naked feet of Italian, you know, Israelites that were traveling through Macedonia in 1980 and it's vintage, you know, it's like whatever. It's not the oil. It's the following the directives of God and believing that what he has put into place, you now practice as your commitment proof, your courageousness of what he has said will bring his answer. That's all it's saying, right? So you do that. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faithful will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. And I, and I like including this. This is, a little, this is a, like the last two little verses, and I like including this. Elijah was a man of a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. But he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. It's like, what does that have to do with anything? Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. So if you think that you have to reach out to the or have to be the most highly, holy, hover above the ground, spiritual person to make it all work. God is saying, consider Elijah. He was a guy just like you guys. And yet he prayed earnestly and it didn't rain for three years. And then he prayed, boom, the rain came. I just want you to know, it's not about Elijah. It's about me working through you, my vessel. Will you listen? Will you get people around you? Will you, will you get those partners going? And we go, oh, you know, it's kind of private. I, I don't really want to share with anyone. You know, I did, it amazes me as a pastor. Now, this is me up here, okay, in the front. 
How many people, and I'm sick, okay? How many people, though, will be out there having infirmities and things and never come forward to have the elders of the church lay hands on them, anoint them with oil, and pray over them? Why? Well, because it's kind of a private thing. Right? Well, I didn't want to really, you know, I didn't want to bother anybody. Or, you know, I just, all the, it's, it's pride. It's foolish. And it goes against what God says. And Joshua says, be courageous and do. And don't you see if God won't answer, right? But we got to bring ourselves. Not let embarrassment and stuff happen because, I mean, just think, Moses is up there on the hill and he's like, I need some help here. Got to have it. Got it. Guys, come on. Quit. Put your phones away. Come on. I need some help. You know, can't you just see, like, if it was nowadays, you know? And, um, and then the, the idea that as, as his arms were going down, it's like, oh my gosh, they're losing. I mean, can you imagine being like the family members of the, you know, it's like, get his arms up, come on. Anyway, I don't want to get distracted by that, but we are to call the elders, right? And so don't neglect this spiritual truth that this chapter is trying to show us. Now, another little insight that always seems to get skipped over in this little section right here is you've got Moses up here doing this. You've got Aaron and her over here holding the arms up. Blood's running out of him. He's like, oh man, this is painful, but let's, let's do this, boys, right? So they're up there in this spiritual truth of prayer and what it avails. Where's Joshua? He's down in the valley with the sword winning the battle. It's twofold. Yes, you need prayer. Yes, you need prayer warriors. Yes, you need to be fervent. But yes, you need the sword of truth in how you win. When Jesus was tempted, flesh, in his temptation, how did he defeat Satan coming against him? With the word, the sword. And it was from the book of Deuteronomy. He wasn't even like quoting New Testament stuff. It hadn't been written yet. He's fighting with the laws of God, the precepts of God, and having absolute victory. To not let his flesh be tempted to go a different way. And again, this is what this is so much about right here. How do I have victory over these things of the flesh, Amalekite, and uh, uh, Amalek and the Amalekites, and how, they're, how it attacks? And it's like, yep, get some prayer warriors, get some prayer going on, but get in the word of truth and believe what God says about you, about who he is in you, what he's done for you, what he's given you to be more than you ever were before, and in fact, what he's done now so that you are who he's created you to be in the likeness of his son, Jesus. That's where we sometimes so stumble because Satan loves to remind us of things. He likes to tell us things. He likes to try to convince us of things that are his things. That's what he was doing with Jesus in the temptation, right? It's like, well, what about this? What if you do it this way? I know you're a little hungry. What about those rocks? We do, we, we do it this way. Or look at these nations. You know, I do control them all, and I could give them to you. You know, we could do it this way. He loves to just kind of bring those other ways of thinking, right? But you've got to be in God's word as Christ knew to say, no, this is what's written, and this is what truth is. And it's under the blood, and I'm free. And get behind me, Satan. That's the victory. But if we don't know the word, if we don't have the sword as our weapon, prayer is great. It's awesome. 
But you ever wonder why you pray and pray and pray and pray and pray for something and it doesn't happen within you? Maybe it's one that only gets cast out with prayer and fasting, which is also part of the word and what Jesus said he expected of us. But maybe it's that you need to do a study on what that thing is in the word. And maybe you need to learn how much God hates it or what God's done to defeat it or what he specifically promises you about it in overcoming it. Because that's really how this, this chapter ends. And I know we got to end because I can go a little long. So verse 14 is how he closes it. It's a beautiful promise at the end. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utter, utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek. Now remember, Amalek? type of flesh, I will blot out the remembrance of the flesh from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. Yahweh Nisi, right? For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God will never stop trying to, to make us his new creation in Christ. But as much as this battle goes on, we have the promise of the New Testament that one day Jesus will deliver us blameless before the throne of God. Blameless. That means nobody can say, but there was that time. No, there was no time. Blameless. We're already justified. You know what justified means? Just as if you've never done it. So you're justified and you're blameless and Jesus delivers us that way. And that is how God will blot out even the memory of the flesh through his Savior and the blood. So man, take up the sword, get your prayer partners and let's battle for victory over ourselves, but over this world and over Satan. Because those are the three that always attack and he's given us the answer to how we can have the victory. Amen?